You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Justice is Served, where we bring you the latest and trending legal news on a weekly basis here on Black Hollywood Live. My name is Sarah Azari. I'm a criminal defense attorney and your host here today. And, I, and I'm joined by my fabulous co-host, the original host of Justice is Served, Mari Fagel, and uh, administrative law attorney, Chelsea Galicia. It's nice to be back and have our little trio together. Nice Finally. to have all three of us, especially because <laughs> there's so much to talk about, like so much breaking news. It's it's exciting when you wake up and you're like, I just want to get to Justice is Served to discuss with my two co-hosts. Exactly. And the breaking news today is that the verdict in the Aaron Hernandez trial um, is out, and Aaron Hernandez is found guilty of first-degree murder and the shooting death of Odin Lloyd. He's also found guilty of the weapons charges related to the um, to the case. Uh, you know, I think that this, uh, this verdict came as a little bit of a surprise to me because uh, this judge was so pro-defense. Um, any any motion that she could grant or deny in favor of the defense, she did in fact that. And um, and frankly, um, I, you know, I think the jury deliberated for so long. This was the seventh day. There's always a, a, a thought, and it's not always true as we can see here, that when the jury deliberates for a longer period of time that it's a not guilty verdict, and when the jury comes back with a verdict quickly, that it is a uh, guilty verdict. And so this this was sort of those aberrant cases where they deliberated for a fairly long time and they came back with a guilty verdict. The prosecution in this case... Um uh, went on for two months with its case with over a hundred witnesses um, and they were able to place Hernandez at the crime scene and also um, uh, essentially to prove motive and the motive to me was a little bit weak I don't know what you guys think but the motive was that Lloyd spoke to uh, um, some people that Hernandez didn't like at a bar in Boston and so Hernandez had motive to whack him essentially well the motive was so weak because like you said the judge was so defense oriented that the true motive is the fact that Odin Lloyd very well could know a lot of information about the other crime the drive-by shooting in 2012 that Aaron Hernandez is charged with and because that's so prejudicial for the jury to hear that he's mm-hmm. charged in yet another murder crime, that motive never came out. So they had to give the jury something. Exactly. And the judge had actually precluded that. That was one of the sort of bad uh, motions for the prosecution. Um, and then to the contrary, the defense's case was one day <laughs> with three witnesses, not the you know, quantity matters necessarily, but um, for the first time, defense counsel argued to uh, to the jurors in closing argument that um, you know he was there, but he was just witnessing uh, the murder of Odin Lloyd. And you know, I, I clearly the jurors didn't buy that. I think all those little things. I think I had talked about that one time when we covered this. Um, the little pieces of evidence, and I think Chelsea was having issues about uh, why. 
these motions were so good for the defense. And I said, wait a minute, though. There's these tiny little pieces of evidence, like the little gum on the shell casing and the rental car, um, that in the aggregate obviously made a difference mm-hmm. for the prosecution. Yeah, it definitely goes to show that circumstantial cases are winnable for the prosecution. Everyone is like, yeah, but there's no weapon. And none of the other guys said that he was the one that pulled the trigger. So they they have to make a leap, the jurors, from that he was there to the one to do, to have actually pulled the trigger. Mm-hmm. And they made that leap, I think, based on some solid evidence. 130 witnesses. I think they did well. Well, and then, you know, that's... Um, in light of the fact that the the uh, defense counsel in closing argument was saying not only he just was there um, and saw it, but that the other two, the co-defendants that are not being tried with him, um, were on PCP. And so one of them may have actually shot and killed Odin Lloyd. So, it was pretty desperate. I mean, the, the defense attorney for Hernandez said the other guys are drug dealers. That is so irrelevant, whether it's true or not true. It's not like anybody could uh, defend them. It was just in a statement. I think it was just a very desperate attempt. It's to- argument. <laughs> argument. You can pretty much say anything, right? Um, but uh, he will be sentenced to life in prison without parole. And, um, and I think this is not going to be the end of trials and courtrooms for Aaron Hernandez, who's now going to face the uh, the He's going to face the 2012 um, drive-by shooting, and this case is also going to work its way up through the appellate system, and maybe it was a good thing for the prosecution in the end that the judge made so many defense-oriented rulings and motions, because then, um, you know, it preserves it preserves the record for appeal, and there's not much that a court of appeal can say that the judge did wrong if she did so much to help the defense, yet it still ended up being a guilty verdict for him. And it was interesting to me, I think, just um, what evidence I think the jury relied on in coming to their decision. I think a lot of it was his own um, home surveillance video. So the fact that he, you know, had installed this surveillance video, I think in the end, might have gotten him a guilty verdict because, you know, it shows him with a gun in his hand, 10 minutes it's after the shooting mm-hmm. and then it shows how callous he is because it shows him and his friends like playing with his newborn baby and hanging out in their man cave just 10 minutes after killing their friend and it shows him he's callous and sometimes jurors they make a decision based off an instinct. This is a bad guy. They don't necessarily make a decision the way the lawyers lay it out for them. Here's the evidence for this charge for this. It's just, he's a bad guy. He's guilty. We think he did it, you know? I don't know. I think the fact that it took them nearly seven days to come up with this verdict means that they didn't just go on instinct, although it may have started there. But I think they sifted through all 130-some-odd witnesses and carefully looked at what was presented to them and then came up with this verdict. And, And you know, it just didn't pass the smell test either. I mean, his fiancée testified that she did, he did ask her to take a box of belongings. She didn't know what's in it. But she did uh, carry this box out of the house. Um, uh, I think she also testified, I, I can't remember what else she testified to, but there were two pieces of evidence that um, even though her testimony was kind of generic and general, um, I, I think still was, was harmful to him. And also the way he was charged under the law, he didn't necessarily have to have been the one to pull the trigger. He just had to have been the one to have called the shots and organized sure. the killing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he couldn't even say, saying Admitting in the end, in closing argument, yeah, he was there, just put him so much closer to that sentence because he didn't need to necessarily be the one to pull the trigger. He just had to have told his friends, kill this man and aided and abetted them in it. plotted it, it, basically. And, you know, 3.30 in the morning in an industrial, dark industrial park, and you see these people go in the back, but then the only person you don't see leaving that area is Lloyd. 
I mean, it's, you know, I four think people go in, three people come out. Right. But I do think one reason why they took seven days to deliberate, in my mind, I think they they switched some jurors' minds. I think that's what went on. I think that some jurors went in there thinking, you know, um, there's not enough beyond a reasonable doubt, and there was enough of a majority in the room to swing their minds and have them all decide um, beyond a reasonable doubt that he was guilty. That's what I think. I wonder if some of the jurors thought, if he didn't orchestrate this, why didn't he get up on the stand and say that? Oh, if he, if Aaron Hernandez was your client, would you ever in a million years tell that man to take the stand? I don't stand? care who my client is. They're uh, not going to, yeah. I mean, uh, but you know, that's always a, a, a concern for a defense attorney because your client's silent and, you know, that's where you have to get into it in opening statement and say, hey, this is my client's constitutional right. Um, although, yes, you might, if someone accuses you of something, your first reaction is to jump up and say, talk and say, I didn't do it. That's not so in a courtroom. He's exercising. His, you can say that till you're blue in the face. And ultimately, if someone has that bias towards a silent defendant, um, you know, it might have something to do with their with their ultimate decision. But I think here there was more than that. There just a lot of it smelled. Um, and, you know, I think if they just put all these little pieces that the prosecution was able to introduce together, um, it was enough to obviously support this verdict. And Chelsea, before the show, you asked me, you said, is Aaron Hernandez a sociopath? And I thought to myself, this is the situation with Aaron Hernandez. This was, like the defense said, a 23-year-old kid who was given a lot of money and a lot of power at a very young age and everyone around him was a yes man and I think he just felt that he was above the law. That's I don't think he's a sociopath. I think that he was given so much money and power and surrounded by everyone who just thought his every move was amazing because he was this amazing football player mm-hmm. and I think he, he just thought he was above the law. Probably coupled with... Uh anger management issues and all kinds of other things that, Well, I think it's obvious he was very insecure and any slight idea that he was um, disrespected, offended, and he was having none of it. And Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see more of that come out in the next uh, trial where he uh, supposedly, you know, in a drive-by shooting, shot two people who bumped into him at a club and spilled a drink. (laughs) How often does that happen? I also do wonder if in the next trial the defense would have him take the stand to testify because obviously this case is still going through an appeal so he's still you know this case could have a different outcome but they may feel like he's already in jail he's already been sentenced to life without the possibility of parole so what's the harm or the risk in having him take the stand and maybe at least having a different outcome in that case but or it's just like keep your keep your mouth shut I already have LWAP on my belt what else what else is there? Right, you know, right, the, the right. second verdict is just justice for the families. That all that's all it is because it has no practical consequence. Consequence, absolutely. I agree. Justice was served. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Congrats, Chelsea. And on time because remember last week. Last week we made a bet on this show. She said that a guilty verdict would be in before the show. I just say you made it by hours, by yeah, hours. As long but you made as it. it. It worked it out. Made yeah. It. All right. So um, shifting the focus to what we call our case of the week, although I think in this case there's a double entendre and it's it's a weekly case because we tend to talk about this issue, if not every week, at least a couple times a month here on Justice is Served, and that has to do with the shooting and killing of an unarmed African-American man by a white police officer. In this instance, we're talking about 50-year-old Walter Scott of uh, North Charleston, South Carolina, who was um, pulled over for a routine traffic stop involving a broken taillight, and he panicked 
panics because he realizes he has an outstanding warrant for his arrest stemming out of an $18,000 back child support payment that he is delinquent on. And so he starts running, and the police officer fires at him eight times, uh, the eighth shot getting him on the ground. Um, And the officer, however, unlike some of the other cases that we've recently covered, is charged with murder. Um, And the officer says, you know, I feared for my life. He grabbed my stun gun. And um, I wish that we had a video to show our viewers. We don't. But when you view the video, which was captured by um, a bystander, a a Dominican native named Mr. Santana, uh, he captures this officer actually going back and picking up the stun gun and bringing it and placing it next to Walter Scott's body on the ground. It's almost like he's staging and um, and in support of his, his position, basically, to justify why he shot this man. Um, that video was instrumental, of course, in the officer uh, getting charged with murder. And I think, you guys, I think it's no longer about the Ferguson situation because in Ferguson, fine, Michael Brown may have had something to do with uh, with the shooting okay he may have um you know his behavior may have called for that response from the police officer fine we'll give it to him but you know look at all the other examples like john crawford in ohio at walmart with the bb gun um a kai girly in brooklyn who's walking out of his apartment and it's a dark flight of stairs and the cop says i got spooked so i shot him uh tamir rice the 12 year old boy with the pellet gun and then you know the the black men that are guilty of minor infractions like eric garner who's choked to death i mean he's selling loose untaxed cigarettes and they attack him and they choke him um so it's really, I mean, what, what, why do you think police officers, what are some of the reasons that they uh, end up in these situations? I think that part of it is who is attracted to this um, line of work. Um, there are a lot of police officers who like to have authority, to exercise authority and power control over other people. And I definitely don't say this about all police officers, but I'm sure some are attracted by the power that uh, this job and the gun gives them, and they may go on a bit of a power trip if somebody doesn't respect their authority and just take it upon themselves to deal with the situation as they feel rather than as protocol requires. Mm-hmm. I think this is a situation that's been going on for a very long time. It's just a situation that's coming more to national attention as of late, especially because of Ferguson and because these things are on video. I think what happened to Eric Harris and what happened to Walter Scott happens a lot, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, happens frequently. But the fact that, you know, a bystander was able to capture this one on video and, um, you know, post it on the Internet. And you, like you say, you see the cop's actions. You see his reactions. You see him say, oh, shit, I shot him. And then you see Mm -hmm. him place the stun gun by his body almost Mm -hmm. as his defense. Like Mm -hmm. his wheels are already turning. And so it's not to belittle the jobs that police officers do every day protecting us. But I do think that it is a cold. And I think that the more we talk about this, the more training there needs to be, the more attention there's going to be on it, the more police officers are going to feel watched and responsible, like they are going to get charged. They aren't just going to get acquitted every single time they shoot someone Mm -hmm. who's unarmed. Um, And I think slowly, you know the culture will change because I think this is racial profiling, you know, and it was interesting to me in the Walter Scott video, the next officer to come 
um, to his body was actually a black female cop. Yes, yes, that was, yeah. Unfortunately, we don't... um we don't have permission to show that video, but um, but yeah, it's very interesting that uh, I, I don't know if they looked for one or it's just a coincidence. But you know, something um, I agree with you, uh, Mari. Something needs to change because if we're going to give these guys badges and guns to go out there and protect us, they need to be able to decipher and differentiate between a menacing gangster with uh, you know with guns versus a a irresponsible citizen like Scott who just hasn't paid child support and, and has a broken taillight. you got to know the difference. You can't just shoot like that. Um, so it, that's what's kind of concerning is is the, um, the the quickness with which they respond over some really, I mean, these guys are all unarmed. I think a lot needs to change. I think it's not just, I think we're going to see changes in many different ways. One, we're going to start with police training. I think that's sure. going to be that's different. Where it starts. And two, I think the law in different states as to excessive use of force needs to change because, mm-hmm. you know, how is it found that the chokehold on Eric Garner, which killed him, was not excessive use of force? And I think, um, you know, being in reasonable fear of your own safety, I think that those standards, I think there needs to be a change in the wording of the law so that these cops don't keep getting off over and over. But I think there's enough national tension now that we will start to see changes. Yeah, and nothing will help to change the culture more than for a police officer to see another officer convicted and sentenced to life in prison Mm -hmm. because he shot and killed somebody. And on that note, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, it was a reserve deputy sheriff who was responsible for the shooting death of uh, Eric Harris. He was charged with second-degree manslaughter. So both of these officers were charged. Now, he's the one that admits he made a mistake. He says, oops, oh, I shot him. And he's not even actually an officer. I don't even think we should give him the respect of calling him an officer. But that's the point. He's a deputy sheriff. He has the same rights and duties as a regular sheriff um, and not to be biased based on age but the guy is 73 years old I don't know if that has anything to do with the way he, he reacted a cop. He, he volunteered he, he donated a lot of money cars and things to the police department, right. and therefore they let him volunteer. Right, which in his retirement as an insurance executive. But if you're so old that you don't know the difference between a taser gun and a real gun, then you need to not be out on the street. That's what I'm saying. And, you know, and I, I, I really thought about whether I should say this or not. But I say this because. I thought about it. I thought most of the deputies and police officers that you see here in Los Angeles on the streets in bad areas, you know, ready to battle violent crimes are not anywhere close to this age group. This is the age group that that takes over a detective desk and does that kind of job. They've worked up the ranks and now they're detectives. And so to put a 73-year-old man in retirement where he's... To arm him with a real gun, with a loaded gun, you know, it's just scary to me that this shooting was this one was so unnecessary i mean he meant to pull the taser gun yet he pulled a real gun and he shot this man to death out a taser the guy was already down he started running Uh, yeah he started running after the sting operation uh unfolded but you know what and a taser is a lot more understandable than a real gun right a taser would have stopped him from running and that was all that was killed him (laughs) fine 
maybe the taser. I, I don't. I didn't see in the series of events what, why the taser was necessary right. in the first place. But I'm not even sure it was his age because remember, and I feel so terrible right now that I cannot remember the young man's name who was killed in Oakland on New Year's Day, and the movie Fruitvale Station was mm-hmm. made after that. Mm-hmm. He too was killed by an officer who mistook a real gun for. Or a taser right, for or at a least real that gun. Was his defense. Right, that didn't right. fly. But uh, this isn't the only time it's happened. But I think this goes to show that there is a lack of training yeah. and a quickness to use force where it might not be necessary. I also don't believe in um, Fruitvale Station that he actually meant to pull the taser gun, but pulled the gun. I think that was his defense. I think in here you see it clearly on video, and you see his reaction immediately. He's like, right. "Oh shit!" Yeah, Oscar- yeah. And the sergeant says, "It's Oscar Grant." Oscar Grant, yes. Thank you so much. Yes, Oscar Grant died. It's sad that there's so many names at this point that you can't even keep track of it. When you started reading that list, I thought, this could take hours because it's true. (laughs) Right. And the, the other part that is awful about this case is that you hear officers were, uh, not at all compassionate to the man yeah. after he mm-hmm. was shot. Mm-hmm. The guy said, I can't breathe, and the officer said, fuck your breath. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is heinous the way that they treated him mm-hmm. after they made this mistake. I think all of the officers that were present should be charged with neglecting to take care of him because right. they just let him die. They did not uh, give him any care. They said, you fucking ran, shut the fuck up, fuck your breath. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty bad. Um, and, you know, his sergeant writes it off to, oh, he's a victim of slip and capture. Okay, I, This is the first time I ever heard of that, but apparently it's a psychological phenomenon where you intend to do thing A, but you mistakenly do thing B because your brain reacts too quickly. So now we're supposed to look at this uh, retired, you know, insurance executive as a victim uh, for killing this man. And then the county sheriff's uh, response was that, uh, how many mistakes happen in the operating room? This is just yet another mistake, similar to, you know, a doctor making uh, a mistake in, in the operating room. So, you know, I think that the, the this is horrible. It's horrible that this keeps happening. Um, I do agree with Mari. I think that the changes are slowly underway. Um, but I think at least in these two instances, both of these officers are charged, um, which is something we which haven't progress. seen. Which is some <laughs> progress, yes. Pathetic progress, but it is. Well, we'll we All will right. keep watching both of these right. stories as they unfold, and unfortunately, I'm sure we'll be talking about this issue yet again in the coming weeks, because... absolutely. The culture isn't changing fast enough. Uh, I want to get to On the Docket. We just yep. have two um, stories, two very local stories to talk about. Uh, one is uh, the case of Suge Knight. Mm-hmm. Suge Knight had his preliminary hearing this week. Uh, preliminary hearing is where after um, you're arrested and charged, you bring it in front of judge to show that there's enough evidence, sufficient evidence, uh, that he committed the crime to let it go to trial and then let it be uh, heard in front of a jury. And at the preliminary hearing this week, didn't look so good for the prosecution. The victim in the case, uh, remember Suge Knight uh, ran over two people in Compton outside of the burger restaurant where they were shooting uh, the film uh, on NWA. And the one man died. Mm-hmm. The other man survived 
took the stand, is technically the prosecution's star witness, yet on the stand just kept saying, I don't recall, I don't recall, I don't recall what happened that night. And he even said, once the prosecution started to read his transcript, that he said to police right after the incident, he said, I don't want to get misconstrued that I told on this man. I'm no snitch. I will not be used to send Suge Knight to prison. I'm no snitch. I mean, what's what's going to happen in the case at that point when the victim in the case is refusing to even speak up against Suge Knight? Suge Knight has such a powerful hold on the music industry in this um, in Los Angeles, it is crazy. And that's one reason why his bail was set at $25 million. Mm-hmm. His bail was set so high because the prosecutors are listening in on his jailhouse calls. And in his jailhouse calls, even though he's in jail right now, sitting behind a cell, he's conducting business. He mm-hmm. is making sure that any musician that wants to come to L.A. has to go through Suge Knight and pay him a fee before they get famous. Mm-hmm. That's still going on in prison. That's why his bail is so high. Because if it was set at $1 million, he would make it no problem problem these people are paying him mm-hmm. so he is going to be charged with extortion and everything else but right now he's charged with um a hit and run killing one man injuring another and the one who's alive is no snitch well i don't want to say i disagree with you but i don't think it's a big deal for the prosecution and the reason i don't is because this commonly happens to the prosecution's star witness um it happens in domestic violence cases where the battered woman or the spouse uh, who's the victim changes their mind and they recant and they say, oh no, I didn't say that to the police officer. The prosecutor says, well, didn't, isn't it true that you said X, Y, and Z? Oh no, I didn't say that or I don't recall. That's always a good way out. Um, because and also saying- in gang cases, also in gang cases, um, because here's, here's why I think, uh, Sloan refused to be a snitch, as he says. Um, even though this is, we're not talking about a gang and we're still talking about the rap community, which is kind of like a gang. Um, and, it is the worst thing to have to live with the reputation of being a snitch. It's it's probably also got something to do with him being afraid of what Shook's people might do to him and his safety and his family safety. But it's more so having to live with the reputation of being a snitch. Nobody wants that reputation in that circle. And for the prosecution, when this happens, there was a people call. There was a sorry. There's a case called People versus Green, um, and they call it greening the witness. Um, so when the prosecutor asks all these questions of the witness, and the witness says, "I don't recall. I just embellished. I don't know. No, I'm crying." And I, I, I just I don't remember what happened, which is what Sloan is doing. Um, the prosecutors then will bring in the officer who's going to say, no, he did say this to me. He actually did say that to me. And then and then in, even, in certain cases, they'll even bring in an expert who will then testify as to why the witness would recant. What are some psychological reasons why this happens in these cases? In this case, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm talking about domestic violence cases with um, with certain experts, but, you know, I think they can rehabil- rehabilitate this guy, and also, he's not the only person that can place Shug behind that, the wheel of that truck. I mean, there's a video yeah, of it. there's a video. There are other people there. But the question is, you know, did the his name is Clay Sloan. Mm-hmm. The question is, did he really have a gun on his waistband and then he pulled the gun and that's the reason why Suge Knight ran him over and then once he was run over, you know, his friends pulled the gun out of his waistband. Allegedly, the video is mm-hmm. a little bit blurry. But if he's not going to 
if he's just going to sit on the stand and say, I don't recall. And, he, and they gave him immunity so that he could say he was the first aggressor and he started this altercation with Shug. Um, so you would think that if he's given immunity, he would freely talk about well, the incident. Well, he did take some of the blame. He did say, I caused this and now Terry's right. dead. But he was so vague about it as to not really give anything right. to them. Good thing we have the video. And I think uh, a jury could very obviously understand why, presented with a, a witness, an expert witness, why he would not want to te- testify against Suge. But his statement was interesting that I don't want to snitch and, and put him in prison, right. which means I know information to put him in prison, but I'm mm-hmm. just choosing not to say it. And or I may contribute to the prosecutor's case that will end up putting him in prison, and I don't want any part in it. Because being a snitch is uh, is like the scarlet letter A on your chest. It's not a good thing to snitch. I mean, nobody likes a snitch, actually. Think about defense attorneys don't like snitches. Nobody likes a snitch. But um, did you guys hear that he um, was about to go in proper? Oh, he was... Suge Knight was going to represent himself. Keep in mind that that's going through three attorneys already before deciding mm-hmm. to play his own attorney and represent himself. He He's crazy. Mm-hmm. He's crazy. And I just am waiting for him to end up behind bars on something because if it's not this, it's extortion. If it's not this crime, it's another crime. It's um, what happened at One Oak. You know, there's so many different things Suge Knight has been involved in over the years that this might be, you know. Well, we've talked before about why does he keep changing attorneys and Sarah's like, it's not prejudicial to him at all. Who knows? But does the fact that he wants to give up on attorneys altogether say something about his mental state? Is he really all there, why would he want to have no representation or think that he could do a better job by himself? A lot of clients do that because they disagree. They, they you know, they're, they're, um, sometimes you get clients who really think they know more than you do. It's just like a really bad thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they want to take their case in their own hands and it's, uh, you know, public service announcement. Don't do it. You know, I think don't represent should. yourself. I think he should. Or sometimes if you do it, it's a stalling tactic because then you, when you're representing yourself, there's so much more constitutional protections that it really draws out the case. And then if last minute, right before the trial, he decides, actually, I want an attorney, the clock restarts. Yeah. So it could be a stalling tactic. Um but I don't, I don't know if he's that smart. Talking about another crazy man behind bars right now, <laughs> uh, who soon or not soon, who may end up in Los Angeles County in front of the DA's office is Robert Durst. He is still in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, what happened is uh, the show The Jinx. It's a six-part HBO documentary. If you guys haven't watched it, I highly recommend you watch it. You know, the first four episodes go through um, the three different crimes that he's alleged to have committed. One, killing his wife. Then, killing his friend Susan Berman because she was a witness to it and she knew enough about it. And then, killing his neighbor in Texas when he was in hiding over um, the disappearance of his wife. And then, chopping that man into little pieces and then being acquitted. So, the first four episodes goes through this crazy story. The fifth episode is when there's finally a new piece of evidence. Uh, the director finds a letter that Robert Durst addressed to his friend Susan Berman, and the letter matched in handwriting style and in misspelling the letter that was sent to cops right after Susan Berman was killed that said cadaver, and then it left the address on Benedict Canyon, Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills spelled wrong. When he sent a letter, Robert Durst, to Susan Berman, Beverly Hills was spelled wrong. After that episode aired, 
Robert Durst fled. He mm-hmm. watched that episode. He said, oh, shit, <laughs> and he fled. He um, left Houston with a bunch of cash, with a gun, and with a map to Florida and then to Cuba. Because where was he going to go? He was going to go to Cuba a with mask. a flesh-tone mask. Right. Uh, yet again, living as a woman or not himself, whatever he was going to live as. Finally, FBI, they'd been watching him. They knew he was fleeing came in, arrested him in Louisiana. When he was arrested, he was caught with a gun, which he was not allowed to have, and he was caught with a bunch of marijuana. Mm -hmm. So he now is in Louisiana on these drug and gun charges. And uh, the defense attorney basically, he came out this week and he said it's a battle between who wants to get at him Mm -hmm. first because Robert Durst has been charged in Los Angeles with the death of Susan Berman. It's not who wants to get a bite of the apple first, I think mm-hmm. it's a stalling tactic. Absolutely. I think that the DA's office Absolutely. doesn't have quite enough to pass mm-hmm. a preliminary hearing because the second that Robert Durst comes back and he's mm-hmm. arraigned, then like we saw in Shug Knight, there's going to be a preliminary hearing where they present evidence in front of a judge and the judge has to decide if that's enough evidence to go to trial. I don't think the DA's office right now has enough evidence. Mm-hmm. So Tell the they judge are to watch the show. Plenty happy to have Robert Durst sitting in, in Louisiana because they it gives them time to develop the case. So when the defense attorney is saying he wants Robert Durst extradited to Los Angeles, and most people think, why would he want his client extradited mm-hmm. so fast on murder charges? Because he wants the DA to show their hands and show their cards early. He wants this preliminary hearing to happen because he wants to see what the DAs have, what right. they don't have, and he wants this case. He wants to start building this case. But in my mind, I just want to ask you, Sarah, about Mm -hmm. this. If he were to get convicted in Louisiana on gun and drug charges, this man's in his 70s. That might be enough to put him away for life. You know, I'm not familiar with uh, Louisiana law, but I think you nailed it in terms of this being a strategy game. You know, remember that the FBI agents that went in and, you know, on the arrest warrant and then searched his hotel room in New Orleans, they were part of a task force that was was working on um, behalf of the um, uh, LAPD homicide detectives. And so uh, what the defense attorney was trying to do it was he was trying to dig for free discovery by getting these guys to come in on the Louisiana case to try to testify on a search and seizure motion which is a challenge to win anyway um, apparently Durst consented to this search of his hotel room and um, and his strategy was to try to get an early in on some of the discovery on the murder case here in LA and and you know what the normal um, expected result in a situation like this where somebody is facing a murder charge in California and a stupid, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry I'm calling it stupid, but in, in comparison to... A nothing to, charge. Yeah, a nothing charge to uh, a murder charge. It really pales in comparison. So he's charged with that in Louisiana, and now the feds and Louisiana is going for it. Um, first of all, the normal course of action would be for the state, like Louisiana, to defer to California because this is a bigger deal. But California doesn't want them to exactly, defer. Exactly, exactly. And, and then the, between the feds and Louisiana... Um, Yes, both the feds and the state can go after the same charge, but they hardly ever do. And in this case, they removed the case to federal court. He's, I think he was arraigned today. Um, and they did that so that, you know, the feds can go forward first. It's their agents after all. And that sort of stalls the ability of the defense to get to these agents as quick, quickly as they were going to in Louisiana state court. And then, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the federal case, but then Louisiana can get a crack. I mean, they can keep him there for as long as possible. And then so, at that point, he might be dead, you know, <laughs> because he is old. He is crazy. He right. is not in good health. And, you know, but the question is, 
if these charges go on for so long, what would be the point of, you know, bringing a case against him in Susan Berman's death unless they had a very strong case, which I don't think they have at this moment. I think mm-hmm. it was a little premature. The only reason they charged him in this case is because he started to flee. Yes. Yes. And they had to. They had to catch him, but I don't think they were ready. You know, the DAs have had this case, have been investigating this case for a couple years now because uh, the jinx was filmed in 2012, the actual mm-hmm. interview, and they handed over, you know, this letter to them at the time. But so why, you know, everyone was wondering why why is he arrested at the same time as this show being aired? You know, what's the coincidence of it? They and looked it wasn't, at his cell phone. They tracked his cell phone and he was, yeah. he was leaving. And it wasn't for entertainment value. It was because the man was fleeing. So yeah. we're going to keep watching the Robert Durst case. Uh, there's going to be a lot more to be developed on that. Chelsea made an interesting a point was um, you said something about um, the show. And I think in, along the lines of what Mari was saying, the prosecution can't just rely on the show because it may be that nothing from the show would be admissible. You know, that's that's a or that's the a prosecution that, relies on the show and then the defense plays all the unedited version of the show and, and then it's to his favor. Yeah. I mean, it's so you know we don't know what the what the DA's office has or doesn't have or needs. And I think you're absolutely right that this is to stall him and you know keep him there as long as possible. So. All right, are we ready for tipping the scales? Yep. More sociopath talk. All right, so one New York woman either has a fascinating hobby or a screw loose up there. So she, this woman, Kelly, uh, gosh, I just forgot. Kreth, thank you. Uh, it's a 44-year-old woman who's a uh, New York uh, real estate publicist and writer who at some point in her life experienced some sort of traumatic incident with a sociopath and that inspired her to learn about the inner workings of the sociopath's mind. So how she does this is she sends a postcard with a picture of herself in a black and white striped dress against a black and white background uh, to people who she thinks, not just any people, uh, murderers in prison, men and women who she believes are sociopaths and who are intelligent enough to give some insight into the way that they think. So she befriends them through this pen pal uh, approach and discloses personal information about herself to make the other person feel comfortable with her. She waits a long time, sometimes years, before she begins to ask the really you know, tough or, or personal questions about the way that they think and about the way they feel. She's discovered that um, sociopaths want to feel like the smartest person in the room. That, that means I know a lot of them. Uh, and also <laughs> um, that uh, they feel um, little remorse and that they often killed just for the thrill of mm-hmm. it. So what do you think? Is she on to some really fascinating research? or is um, she I think con- it's a book deal. <laughs> yeah, I think she's she's got uh, I don't think she has screws loose. I think somebody pissed her off. I mean, in fact, she says that she had a sociopath in her life and set her off on this research. And I think she's actually smart. She's going for, she's not going to a therapist and asking questions. She's not reading The Sociopath Next Door, which is a great book. Um, she's actually going straight to hear it from the horse's mouth. You and know? she's keeping the relationship enough of a distance. It's not like she's developing a romantic relationship yeah. with these sociopaths because that's something that I've seen more often is these women who write letters to men in prison and they write love letters and they develop yeah. relationships with them even though they've never even met them. I actually know someone who was an acquaintance of mine who I grew up with who is currently engaged to a man who is, um, he was 
under a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Mm-hmm. That got lifted on appeal, but he's still not up for parole until another 10 years. He won't be eligible. This man's 38. She's my age. She's 28. And um, she read about the guy's story in Rolling Stone, started writing him. Now she's engaged. Uh, another quick story. My, why? Did you ask her it's why? It's a safe relationship. I mean, I guess if it, that takes fear of intimacy issue, to a whole new level. Of course, yeah. And then the other thing that bothered me was my parents across the street neighbors, this is a terrible story, before I was born, were murdered in cold blood. And I read about the man who did it when I was at the DA's office. I followed his case, and he was sentenced to the death penalty. This was back in 1981, worked his way all the way up through all the appeals, yet is still alive on death row. And when you Google him, what's the first thing to come up? His pen pal site, a picture of him in a white T-shirt, and jeans doesn't even look like he's in prison asking women to write him and dis- describing like a like a match.com ad oh my name is this oh this is what i like to do and women write this man it's jaildick.com it's, it's that's sick. a great website um you know what i think the when um chelsea was talking about this what came to my mind was to me the prime example of the relationship with uh, an inmate was and i don't know if our our viewers are uh old enough to remember this but susan atkins who was one of the Charles Manson girls, the lead, you know, murderer. Um, uh, she passed away in 2009, but back in 1987, when she was 40, she married um, John Whitehouse, who was 24 years old. Um, he started writing her. It was a pen pal relationship as well that developed into a romantic relationship. She had, of course, found God, because what else is she going to do at the uh, women's prison? Um, so she found God, and she transformed herself, and she became a spiritual person, and Whitehouse was so impressed by the new woman that she's become because he had dabbled with drugs and uh, he he writes her he meets her they get married um, and in fact he ends up going to Harvard Law School to become her lawyer and they go through various uh, parole hearings together and he was her advocate so a lot more happens I think you, this is a book deal this would she's you read on the a, book I'm sorry would you read the book I'd read it. Maybe. I have other things to read before this one. But <laughs> I think it's frightening because I think that even though she talks to these people who are on the extreme end who, you know, kill people and don't think twice about it. Yeah. I mean, one of the guys that she is pen pals with is a doctor who poisoned about 60 people and right. says he didn't have any confusion, second thoughts, remorse about it. And that's how it went on for so long. So that's an extreme. But I think that you can still uh, understand the characteristics and learn to spot them in people who are less heinous in their behavior and it is a, a good I thought way her to approach was interesting. I thought the striped dress, the color, the the choice of colors, the black and the white, um, it was almost like she was setting herself to, up to be, um, you know, uh, equal playground with them, you know, with, with the striped dress, you know, being better than bar. sending a nude selfie. <laughs> exactly. So, all right. Um, so the question is, one, would you read the book? And two, what do you think of these people who write these prisoners letters and straight up relationships with them um i just find the whole thing fascinating so tweet me at marie fagel at chelsea galicia at azari law and thank you so much for joining us uh join us same time same place next week Dariel Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook. 
tweet us or Instagram us at PHL Online. And I'm your PHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host owner and do not necessarily reflect the views of PHL or its owners or principals.